Geekish Cast is a member of the Astro Panda Productions Network. Welcome back to Geekish Cast. I'm your host, Jeremy, and joining me today is Charles A. Chester from Boy Zero, a comic book being published by Caliber Press. What's happening, Charlie? Hey, how's it going, man? Doing well, thanks. Uh, so today you're actually filming this, or it's being filmed for a documentary film that you are being featured in or are part of. So yeah. if, I, if I come across extra goofy or anything, it's because I'm not used to having my camera on. But anyways, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the video project you're working on. Uh, the video project is a, a documentary on indie uh, comic writing. Um, uh, my buddy Devin is uh, the documenter, and uh, he's filming right now. The uh, the basic um, uh, idea of the uh, the film is to follow me, as well as a couple other um, uh, comic book uh, writers on the indie circuit, just to highlight the um, the journey. You know. Um, okay. Because, you know, like, as of right now, like, indie comics is like the Wild West. I mean, like, we're making it up the rules as we go. I mean, success is coming every which way, you know. Um, comic books are hot right now when it comes to film and TV. I mean, they're getting gobbled up by every major studio. And, and when you have um, all these different avenues of um, media right now, uh, streaming services, like, all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, YouTube has their own, like, film production company, TV production company, and you got Sony PlayStation um, coming in uh, as well as, you know, the Amazons, the the Hulus with all original content. The name of the game right now is just to, uh, you know, find what's hot, and comic books are very hot right now. So um, that's kind of the uh, the uh, the vehicle for the, uh, the film. Sure um, thing. Does it have a title or a working title, the film? No working title yet, as I know. Devin? I've got a few, but nothing that. Nothing solid no. yet? Solid. All right. Nothing solid. Nothing solid. Nothing yet. Nothing Nothing punny. Nothing uh, figured out just yet. I got 2BD. You. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this instead. So you've got a comic that's being released by Caliber Press called Boy Zero. Um, mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's cover your background a little bit. When did you get into comic books yourself? Uh, I got into comics when I was a kid. Um, I want to say I was uh, – actually, I know exactly when I was. Um, I was nine years old. It was 1989, and uh, uh, Batman just came out. Michael Keaton Batman just came out. And at that point, honestly, I all I thought comic books were was like Archie and um, like Marmaduke. You know, mm -hmm. like nothing – like, you know, nothing that really interested me as a kid. And then all of a sudden this dark – comic book movie came out and i was just enthralled i was like this is uh this is amazing like they, like because i loved horror movies as a kid um uh to see one of my like you know a hero uh actually take the mantle of like you know kind of like a dark or the dark crusader uh just you know uh just lit me up i was just like super excited by that so like that was uh i begged my parents to go see that movie in the theater uh, they took me to go see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm so pissed at them for that. But then, like, two weeks later, I ended up seeing uh, Batman. And uh, ever since then, um, I've been reading Batman, and uh, it moved on to um, uh, 
some high concept work by like Alan Moore and stuff that really latched me in and, and made me want become more than a fan and actually a participant. Like I really wanted to be involved. Uh, I'd say once I hit my teens and I started reading um, like Swamp Thing and and Watchmen and you know uh, anything by Alan Moore, I was just gobbling it up. Yeah, so what's your all time favorite uh, either you know graphic novel or story or or comic book title? Uh, you know I. That whole angle of um, reinventing Swamp Thing, um, where you like that when you just find out that uh, the Swamp Thing is uh, not actually the scientist anymore, and he's actually just uh, the creature um, that thought that thought he was a man. That yeah. like you know you know that kind of to me i was like you know like i didn't realize comics you know that there is there was actually thought like these deep thoughts you know these um these harrowing tales you know so i would say um you know swamp thing probably would be uh number one since then um i mean i i i gobbled up preacher like i think i read the entire series in like one day i just couldn't put it down um and then uh you know i've moved on to uh um, some work by, um, you know, Scott Snyder, um, and, uh, most recently, um, no, actually, I wouldn't say most recently. I've been a fan of Brian K. Vaughn since Ex Machina. Like, I remember going into New York City, uh, I lived in New York City at the time, and I was, uh, going to Forbidden Planet. I don't know if you've ever been, but, like, that place is, like, that's my church. Forbidden Planet is such a great comic book store. Um, and issue one of Ex Machina was out and at that time i was really obsessed with planetarium the comic book um and uh the guys there were like put planetarium down if you're only gonna buy one comic book today give x mine a shot and ever since then like uh brian k bones just writing has just been um like gospel to me like okay. I, I love everything he's done um most recently saga is great but but he's been killing it for me for over like 15 years now that's outstanding. So then how did you decide to get, I mean, uh, Boy Zero, you're writing it, right? If I'm, I'm not mistaken there. When did you decide to try writing your own comic book? Um, well, I went to film school um, for college. Uh, so when I was in film school, I, um, I went to a film school in like one of the most richest areas of the country. It was Long Island. And um, my family, we had no money, you know. So – I, I was seeing that like I, I didn't pay heed to it when when I was going there and I, I was taking the tour and they were like, um, you know, you pay for your own books and whatnot and film supplies. I'm like, OK, well, whatever that is, you know, like that's not going to be much. And then I get in and I realize that like, you know, uh, Joe Schmo next to me um, is got all this family money and they're buying him like 16 millimeter cameras and like, um, you know, paying for set locations to do his short films and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I've got the money I'm making at the movie theater that I work part time on the weekends. And I realized I just couldn't keep up like, uh, you know, like I'm even to to make a short film on no budget. You still you still need to pay your actors. You got to pay for craft mm -hmm. services. You got to keep people happy. I mean, I, I remember almost getting into a fist fight with one of my DPs because there was no coffee on set. You know what I mean? Like, like, like it's, um, it's a very high stress environment. And, and I feel like if you don't have certain luxuries that I did not have at the time, then the work suffers and it doesn't become your original vision. Like Hitchcock, uh, 
had this this little quip that like you know I I absolutely loved. He was like they would spend six months on the pre-production of a film, and then when all of the storyboards were done and they were all set and it was like this, it was all beautifully laid out on the table. He said that was the worst day of production for him because that was the day they actually had to pick the camera up and work with actors. Because at that point, nothing would be the same and it would actually begin to degrade in value. His original vision, you know, might be 10% of what they, you know, had planned because of all the things you have to give up. So when I was in film school, I started to, you know, um, take note to all this stuff. So I focused on on writing. Um, so I ended up becoming like the my classes, my departments. Um, script doctor. So I would work on everyone else's scripts and clean them up and, um, you know, push them um, in, you know, maybe uh, directions that they weren't planning on going and, and just help the, help them along. Um, so I stopped doing production. And during that time, I uh, I started studying film uh, uh, script for um, comics. And uh, Alan Moore's in particular. I mean, he writes like literally um, – thousands of pages like long scripts for like a book that might end up being 400 pages um he's so detailed it's incredible his amount of detail so i found that there was a lot of freedom in that and i and i took to it um you know quite a bit so right actually my thesis for college was um to do uh, a film um to write a film and the character in the film was um an uh, a wannabe comic book author named Clyde Farrell, and Clyde was writing a, a story in the film called Boy Zero. So I pitched this to the the um, the department saying, I'm going to take this past my graduation. What I, what I want to do is I actually want to create – I'm going to write you guys the script, um, and I'm going to start creating the book that Clyde Farrell writes in the film, and then down the line, like 50, 40 years from now, 30 years from now, wherever it might be, I'd like to actually, you know, hopefully one day get to make the film and kind of do the self-reflexive thing where, like, you know, it works its way backwards. Okay. Um, so uh, I got involved and I found that, like, while I liked the film script that I was writing, I fell in love with the comic book aspect of writing. And once that happened, you know, I finished the script. I've written many scripts since, but um, film script. But uh, I I focused hard on the uh, – the graphic novels, because I was also finding that I could pull off major productions on every page. You know, if I wanted to have, um, you know, like a a, a, a gunfight in the you know, OK Corral, I don't have to, you know, fly everyone to Arizona or whoever, wherever it is for location. I don't have to hire 50 extras. You know, we just draw it, you know, and. and at that point, like, um, my characters became much more robust. You know, I didn't have to temper anything uh, for a budget that I knew I could never do. I could let these characters live and be who they needed to be. Um, so, yeah, I just I just stuck with that, and I've been doing that ever since. Okay, so it was a very practical matter for you. It was that like you could afford to do a comic book easier than you could afford to make a movie. So right. It sounds like that was part of the decision-making process. Um, Absolutely. So your book, Boy Zero, what is it about? What is the, the core concept of Boy Zero? Um, the core concept is, uh, well, I wanted to do a story that was um, crime fiction, but had almost a supernatural Stephen King-esque element to it, uh, combining my two favorite things, like Agatha Christie murder mysteries, like Ten Little Indians, 
and um, uh, the um, the TV series, the miniseries, Stephen King miniseries, like when I was in the, like a kid in the '90s, um, he had a number of them. Um, like those were my favorite because we didn't have cable. So like mm-hmm. when a Stephen King miniseries like it came on TV, that was like my um, uh, window to you know like a higher form entertainment. You know, um, so uh, I wanted to combine those two those two ideas. So Boy Zero is um, it's about a serial killer in my metropolis called Glass City. Um, he's been killing under the um, the mantle of um, uh, the throne of God, and he's been killing for months and months, and the, the detectives are at a loss. They finally pick up a pattern on it, and uh, they um, race to what they think is going to be the next you know, killing spree, uh, next killing, I should say. And on their way, all of a sudden, like a, a sound uh, uh, crackles in the whole city, and every speaker has been tapped into, and a song begins to play. It's this old um, slave song um, called the uh, um, uh, God uh, Dips His Pen of Love in Your Heart. And um, it's like this it's, – it's creepy in a beautiful way. Um, so he's, he does this every time he kills somebody. So the whole city is crippled in fear every time the song starts to play. So uh, the cops get there. They get to the point where um, they, they were right. They found where the killer was going to be. They find the killer, and he's just mumbling to himself. He's, he's besides himself like he had a stroke. They come to find that somebody else was there. They got there before him and put him in – this sort of weird knocked out state, like he was drugged. The detective come, uh, remembers that he has seen this look before. Um, and he realizes that uh, a case of his 20 years prior um, has a connection to this in some way. He goes to try to you know, figure out what's going on with this killer. And uh, the killer pretty much um, commits uh, um, suicide. Um, before he's able to get out the information he wants. So the heart of our story is our main detective actually um, revisiting his old case. We're we're jumping back and forth because he's trying to figure out why the killings are happening now on a case that happened 20 years ago that they solved. So he missed something. So when we jump back in time, we're actually hanging out with the kids in this small town that are getting picked off. They're all getting murdered. And we're trying to figure out Ten Little Indian style, who's the killer in this small town, mm-hmm. and is this killer going to end up being the same person that is killing um, in the future, or is there something supernatural at play? Um, so we jump back and forth in time quite a bit um, for this. I, I use epic not in like a self-congratulating way, but but truly just a, a large span of time um, story that is uh, um, just just a huge murder fest, you know, just people are getting killed left and right. So, so you're exploring both, both murder, uh, what would you even call that? Just like strings of murder simultaneously, but one took place in the past, one's taking place in the future or the current. Right. That's kind of cool. So you get two, two styles of story at the same time. Yeah. 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 Um, I love the dynamic that they did with it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm unabashedly going to say like a lot of, uh, this story in particular pays a lot of homage um, and um, owes itself a lot to what Stephen King was doing with um, that nonlinear storytelling of jumping back and forth in time between uh, 
kids and adults um and you know something that was picking them off like a like um uh, a shark amongst them um but you know my story uh is is not uh so much a creature feature as it's more about a um uh, a murder mystery um trying to figure out uh what's going on there's a there's a great show on the bbc called uh Broadchurch, yep. david Tennant. yeah so like that sort of feel you know that vibe i would say um trying to figure out who, who killed uh, the little boy um, so they could stop it from continuing. Yeah, it was a, that was a pretty hard show to watch for me, actually. It was Is it? A, yeah. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, there are certain things that, that affect me personally, and, and a, trying to solve a child's murder is one where I'm always like, ah, that, that's a hard one for me to sit through. So, yeah, it just means it's good storytelling, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it can, if it can uh, strike a chord with uh, many people, like, I don't have children, but... You know, I have younger sisters, I have nephews and nieces, and like, you know, a story like that, I just just strikes at the heart of just uh, just about anybody, I would think. You know? Oh, sure thing. Um, so, what is your what is your release plan? Is this going to be a big graphic novel? Is it going to be a series of independent issues? How are you releasing Boy Zero? Uh, Boy Zero was released uh, via Comicology um, and uh, all the other major digital um, digital platforms. Uh, by issues slash by chapters. It's a seven chapter book. We released seven issues. And then when they were all released, they were finally like, you know, every month uh, one came out. Then we um, took the, uh, the collection and put them to print. There's two volumes. Uh, my, my book, my seven chapter book was broken up into two volumes, um, which are available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, if the price tag is too expensive, because it's, it's vivid color. Uh, Caliber also put out a one collected piece in black and white. You don't really lose anything as the story doesn't rely on the color. It it's just you know um, Shiloh Penfield did a beautiful um, job with the um, watercolors. She is a savant when it comes to watercolors. They're absolutely gorgeous. Um, she uh, you know so I like I I feel like there's a disservice in certain ways you know just because what she was able to pull off with that going black and white, but because it's an old crime noir slash like you know murder mystery the black and white almost adds like this creepy element to it that you mm -hmm. get something out of that so i realized being like a no-name author that a um a 15 dollar price tag is a lot more easy to swallow than you know a 20 dollars a volume of the color so but i'm happy that they're both out there in case you know, someone really loves the black and white and they're like oh i would love to own you know the color so like whenever i do book signings and whatnot i offer up both you know to to uh, anybody that might be interested. Yeah, but see, you're you're doing this during a time period where comics are selling better than any time they have in the last 20 years, and yeah. um, you know, especially when you're doing conventions and shows, I don't imagine 40 bucks is is a hard pill for anybody to swallow when they're at your table, because you know you're you're blowing 40 bucks on two prints usually. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Um, I mean, the cost of uh, color um printing is is it's expensive yeah. you know and uh gary reed the the uh the owner of uh caliber comics he was he he just died recently yes. unfortunately he was you know he's a brilliant man absolutely a giant um in the indie comic industry um I, he he touched so many uh, uh respected um comic book uh guys came from underneath uh gary he got uh, so many people got their start from the him. crow um, yeah, yeah, they had the crow. Yeah. And I was, oh, I, I just, okay, so remember I was saying before we started that I was redecorating and moving stuff around. 
I was yeah. just going to reach to where my collected editions of Dead World were, but they're not there anymore. So I was going to be like, I have Caliber. No, that it's not there. So never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. Caliber Comics, especially back in the 90s, but since they've come back, have always had some cutting edge, um, forward thinking comic books. I mean, like, you know, they were doing zombie comics in the 80s. Yeah. You know, 30 years uh, before anybody gave a shit about zombies. Yeah, and and at that point, Gary Reed was like, you know, um, I want to flip something on its head that doesn't even need to be flipped yet. It wasn't even killed yet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like the genre, and he started he started uh, diving into like um, uh, the, the idea of like the intelligent zombie and and things that like even twenty years later, like Stephen King taps into in the movie in the book The Cell. Gary Reed was doing fifteen yeah. twenty years ago. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, the guy, the guy was, I don't want to say underappreciated because everyone that knew him loved him, but I wish he had that commercial success that he deserved, you know, before he passed away. Um, but yeah, no, I, if anything happens with my career, I owe it to that guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I know, and we know each other because of Andrea Molinari, uh, who's been on yeah. my show a couple of times. So mm-hmm. Andrea sings Gary Reed's praises every time I talk to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, definitely Gary the people Reed, that worked with him seem to really appreciate him. So that's that's always kind of amazing too. For the yeah, he owned the company, and I and I had complete access to the guy. I call him up and just geek out about like some like uh, plot that I was thinking about, like you know, three books from now. I'm like, yo, should I go that route, Gary? And he's like, uh, yeah, I really dig this. Uh, just keep in mind for something of that magnitude, because of the cost of color, you might want to go black and white. Think about that as you're writing it, you know, so that you don't like integrate story that is going to be um, uh, contingent on like having like a color, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, it, you know, for instance, like if some of your characters all have like, you know, blue eyes and that's, you know, that that sets them apart, you know, as like, you know, they're like, you know, a special sort of people or whatever. It's not going to work in black and white, obviously, you know, um, so. We had some very interesting uh, conversation. He, he put me onto some things I never would have actually thought about. Um, so yeah, no, great, great guy, absolutely great guy. That's amazing. So now you're a writer. That's your your background. Like that's kind of how you come into making comic books, correct? You don't also illustrate, do you? No, I can't. Okay. I can't even do stick figures. My stick figures look like owl people. They, they just, you know, they're. Yeah, yeah, no, I I used to draw when I was younger, but I don't now, so I'm lucky. I'm lucky to even like get a word written down properly anymore. But, um, <laughs> so as a writer, you got your script. You're you're getting ready to put this comic book together. How did you go about finding an art team to work with? So uh, I was living in New York City, um, and this was before the bubble burst. Um, so I started. At that point, like, I only had really, like, Craigslist. I didn't, like – if DeviantArt was, existed at that point, I was not aware of it. Mm-hmm. I was not an artist. I didn't know anything about it. I was a writer, you know? So I put an ad out in Craigslist, um, and I got probably about 50 replies. Um, of the 50, I think maybe three or four of them were actual sequential artists, like talented sequential artists mm-hmm. that, you know, that um, would – Bring something to the table, I should say. And then, so what I did was I um, I I, I uh, sent out um, script to those four artists. I said I would like you to do one page of sequential art based on these scripts. Um, uh, you know, bring it back to me. Um, and the thought process there was, um, I just wanted to see who I wasn't going to have to hold their hand 
that they were going to be uh, able to see the vision, um, not ask a billion questions and kind of get it, you know, just speak the same language that I'm speaking, you know. And of all of them, um, Shiloh just stood out. I knew immediately as soon as I looked at the page that it was going to be, um, you know, perfect. So we sat down we had a conversation um, and, you know, we made a promise to each other we would finish the book, you know, no matter what. Um, and the bubble burst and I had to move out of New York City. I wasn't getting a steady paycheck anymore. I was working in news at the time as a as a technical director in the newsroom. Um, but even as that happened, Shiloh was okay with like, okay, this month we'll do like three pages, and then when I uh, collect unemployment next month, I'll, I'll you know I won't eat uh, for for a couple days, and like you know we'll get another page done. And we just kept doing that for for years, and then you know my, you know I, I my career you know, got a little bit better in the TV industry. I was able to afford a few more pages a month. We kept rolling with it until, um, you know, we finished it. I, I can't tell you how many times I literally had like waking nightmares where, uh, the postal service, like Shiloh and I would do everything by email that one day the emails would just go dead and I would never hear from her again. You know what I mean? Like all this time, you know, put in, uh, we were just so close to finishing it that like it would be wasted because she had such a unique look and feel to her work. No one was going to be able to pick up that baton. It was going to be obvious that someone new came onto the book. Right. You know, but she she stood with me the whole time. You know, it was, uh, it was a partnership, almost like a marriage in a while, in a way where, um, you know, we stood by each other, you know, and uh, we got through it and. Uh, you know, I'll always work with Shiloh to some capacity, you know, the, the well, loyalty. So how long did it take you? I mean, you said it took years to get this book done. How, how many years did it take? Uh, we started in 2008, um, like a soft start. And I would say I finished in 2016. So, so about eight years. Um, but I actually started with a different artist who was a close friend of mine. Um, I went down to Savannah, Georgia. We got we got the book started. Uh, we didn't see eye to eye on a, on a lot of stuff. Um, and his uh, his art took a little bit too long for the book to actually ever have seen the light of day. Um, uh, it, his attention to detail was amazing, but it, I, I had to make a really tough decision and walk away from it because. Um, I realized that a 200-page book, we'd be doing this into our 50s at the right. pace that we're going. So, so I stepped away. It was tough because I spent four months with the guy working. So we had to scrap everything we did, um, and I started over and uh, started with Shiloh in 2008. That's outstanding. I, I want to comment on the black and white thing real quick. I, I think it's kind of cool that you're doing a color version, a black and white version, especially with Logan and Fury Road having been released in color and black and white. Because sometimes things look fucking amazing in black and white. It's, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, I love that the, um, Mad Max Fury Road came out in black and white. That movie just absolutely looks gorgeous yeah. in black and white. And I was on I was on a real horns about that one because what I loved when I first went to see it in the theater was that for the first time in ten years a movie was using color with a capital C. And there were yeah. reds and blues and it was just amazing. And it came out of the black and white and I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of crapping all over what I like. Oh, but but it looks amazing. Never mind. It looks fantastic <laughs> in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. So crisp. I mean like the um 
the grayscale in that movie. Like, yeah, that that cinematographer, I, and forgive me, I don't know who it is at the, at this point, but like, killed it's, it. It's yeah. George Miller's wife, and I can't remember her name. She shot it, really. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, if if I remember right, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is because. They did a lot of really innovative things, like centering all the imagery in the center of the screen. That way, uh-huh. edits were less jumpy and all over the place because all your all your actions in the middle of the screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's one one shot in particular also that um, I I just like was floored by. They're in the uh, the duster. They're, they're driving in, into the desert. You know, it's him and the girls in the back seat. And if you look at the the color scheme, the lighting in the foreground, in the front seat, it's blue. In the middle seat, it's like orange. There's like a fall off of maybe like like I want to say six inches. It's almost physically impossible to pull off the lighting, the yeah. the, uh, the special lighting that they did in there. And I don't know if it was a green screen effect that they were using, but it just looks so comic esque. It's yeah. gorgeous. And that yeah. was the thing I love. Yeah, it just it looked like a Moebius comic from France. I mean, it just it was outstanding okay. with all the color and everything. Which, by the way, since it's coming out next week, I wanna I wanna say this as well. Wonder Woman. When I saw the first trailer for it and realized that you could see that she was wearing red and blue and not just brown and gray, I was really excited about too. I oh yeah. Sick yeah. to death of bled out blues everywhere and everything. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the DC universe is just just saturated. It, it's like. It's like, you know, someone just um, just threw black paint over the yeah. entire universe. Let's you just know? keep tuning it down all the way till we can't really see what's going on on screen. I, you know, I just heard that uh, they pulled Snyder off of Justice League. Well, so he, they didn't pull him off. His daughter committed suicide in March. And, oh, is uh, that right? Yeah, he and his wife actually exited. They thought, and my wife and I lost a child, so I, I kind of know how this goes. You think, well, if I just keep working, I can deal with it, and you can't. So they tried oh, really? that, and so Joss Whedon had started to step in to fill in with reshoots and uh, after principal photography. So you know, yeah. I don't. Uh, that that's awful. I, yeah. I mean, that that that's terrible. I can't. I, I did not know that. Um, I. I got to say, I haven't been a fan of Snyder's take on um, uh, that universe, Mm -hmm. but I I don't know that um, I'm excited about Whedon. I mean, like, I I, I love Whedon. I like Firefly. I've I've loved everything he's done. Like, his little touches to the Marvel Universe have been great. Even his his, uh, run on on X-Men and whatnot. Like, like it's all been been, uh, really good, and and he's very witty. Um, But... uh, I don't know. Like uh, he he's had his turn on Marvel. Like I would like to see somebody else take this mantle, you yeah. know, over at DC, just to see just something different. You know, give us a little like you know different taste. Like I absolutely love that Thor Ragnarok is being directed by the guy that did uh, what we do in the shadows. Yes, that, uh, I can't believe like, that, that guy's name. Brilliant choice. That yeah. is amazing. Like that guy is hysterical. That dry wit. I'm like. That's what, the one thing I really do like about Marvel is that they give a chance to the fanboy directors. Yeah, you know, like that um, are just doing interesting stuff. Well, I'm not. I mean, I'm as excited as normal when it comes to a Marvel movie because like Iron Man was just outstanding. I can't wait to see what they do with the next uh, Spider Man, Winter Soldier, and uh, Civil War. I love both those movies. I mean, Winter Soldier I think is just one of the greatest movies made in the last five years, anyways. But when it comes, to, I. I <sighs> When it comes to specifically Batman versus Superman, there were things about it I liked. 
Um, mm. I thought showing Batman crash that window and beat the living hell out of 20 guys, that's Batman. I mean, that's what, when Batman crashes into room, that's what it should look like. I thought yeah. Ben Affleck nailed Batman. Yeah. One of the things I, I struggle with, because I still feel like movies are too long these days. I, I think two and a half, three hours is too damn long, but that uh, Batman versus Superman, not, and you got to be, no, I'm not saying it was a great movie, but I felt the three hour cut was better than the two and a half hour cut because things were missed in there. I didn't get to see the three hour cut. That's yeah. The director's cut. Yeah. The, the director. Yeah. It was, I, I can't remember what they called it, but it's, it was the Blu-ray that when you get the Blu-ray yeah. it was on there because they left stuff in like the village at the beginning where they're like trying to say Superman killed all those people. And you're going, well, what do they think? He like came in with an M16 and gunned everybody down. Well, in the longer mm -hmm. cut, they left it in where they took out flamethrowers and uh, burn all the bodies and burnt the village to the ground. Oh, okay. Um, so motive, they put the motivations back in. Yes. That they glossed over. Exactly. Like Lois and Clark did some reporting in the, in the longer version. Oh, really? Yes. Because <laughs> she hasn't done any yet. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that Lex Luthor was paying people to kill prisoners with a bat brand on them. Oh. There's okay. just all these little rolling things that would have made it better. Now, I still think if they cut the movie down to an hour and a half, it would have been that much better as well. Yeah. Um, I give Zack Snyder a little credit because he filmed the unfilmable movie. He actually made a Watchmen movie that more or less made sense. Oh, I'll fight to the to my last days that Watchmen is a great adaptation. I yeah. think he did a phenomenal job. Yeah. And I hear a lot of people saying they're like, oh, no. Literally, it was shot for shot. I mean, like it was it was the book in a lot of ways. I mean, they had, they made some, you know, the ending was, was changed up. But his interpretation of these characters is phenomenal. The amount of detail they went into, like Rorschach, the way he sounds – um, they mention it in passing. One line of dialogue talks about in the book how Rorschach sounds like this funny, you know, raspy, um, odd little character, throwaway line, and they created, you know, such a rich, robust character around this. I mean, you could tell that he, the way that uh, Peter Jackson loves Lord of the Rings, you could tell Zack Snyder loved The Watchmen. Watchmen. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I respect that. I like that, you know. Yeah, so I, I give – well, in 300, and we obviously can't forget 300, too. Um, right. So I, I give Zack Snyder a little bit of room. I get why people weren't happy with The Man of Steel and with uh, Batman versus Superman. But, you know. So that being said, I want to see what they do with it. Um, I'm very sad to have learned why Zack Snyder stepped, stepped out of the film. Uh, yeah, that's, it's that's, not a good situation. Tragic. Yeah, it's just not a yeah. good situation at all. Um, I'm kind of sick of hearing people like cracking wise about how it's a good thing, and the first person that says it in front of me is getting punched in the throat. So, that being said, um, yeah, let's talk back about your comic again. So, Boy Zero, uh, when did you actually start releasing it? I mean, it, it's out physically because you're selling the book when you're doing conventions and stuff. So, mm -hmm. when did it actually go on sale? Uh, it's been up um, for just shy of a year at this point um, through Caliber. So um, yeah, I uh, I put it out, and I gotta be I gotta say I'm not I haven't been the best with um, self promoting. Um, I've, I only did a few podcasts, and then uh, I really dove into working on my next book, um, and now um, this book I'm like you know what I I really 
kind of take a page from like Andrea, you know, um, who did the Shepherd for Caliber, and just really get out there and just hit the pavement. Nothing's gonna, uh, no one's gonna know about, you know, this eight-year journey that I was on unless I get out there and start talking about it um, and the things that I learned along the way. Um, so, so yeah, eight, uh, one year it's been out, um, but I would say only over the past uh, three weeks now have I really dived back in and. You know, hooked up with Devin on this documentary film, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we have a book signing coming up in a month um, in Bryn Mawr um, Showcase Comics, uh, Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Um, so that'll be the first book signing that I'm doing. Um, doing a couple more podcasts, and then uh, I'll start finally doing conventions um, in the next couple months. Oh, that's outstanding. And, you know, my, my everyday job is I'm a salesman, and my big thing is nothing happens until you sell something. And nothing sells until you get out there and shake a hand or make a promise or a commitment or a connection. And, you know, so yeah. that's one of the things I always like to hear about when people in your condition or, you know, you've made your book. First off, let me ask you this before I get carried away in one of my my random thoughts here. What did it feel like to hold your first printed comic book in your hand? I'm not I'm not an emotional guy, but uh, I did get teared up um, when it, when I finally had that uh, that test print. Mm-hmm. Um, Gary sent it to me directly, and uh, after eight years, I, one of my best friends uh, works for Canon Copiers, and I can't tell you how many times he's done me a solid and printed up pages for me so that I could just you know use them for submissions or whatever it was. But we're talking like. Um, when you print via like, you know, free copies off a color copier, uh, a 200 page book is like as thick as the Bible. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not a, a good representation of what this is actually going to feel like. And with uh, glue binding and, and, and just ha- to have the label of caliber on it. Like, yeah, I got, I got pretty choked up. Um, uh, yeah, it was a great feeling. And, and, uh, you know, Gary was on the phone with me, um, that same day, just, uh, like congratulating me, you know, um, you know, that, uh, uh, we have, we had made it that far, you know? Um, so yeah, no, it was an amazing feeling. I, I, I don't have kids, you know, I've never, um, had an experience like, um, you know, uh, never been married. Um, I would say up until that point, that was probably the greatest, uh, feeling I've ever had. Well, cause that's the first concrete thing. I mean, You've put all, it's abstract, you know, you've written words, you've looked at drawings, you've emailed about it, but you get that book in your hand, and especially in like your case, because it's got the caliber label, boom, I mean, right on it. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's a very concrete thing, so, I mean, that's kind of cool, and congratulations if you're actually getting it done, because you know as well as I do, a lot of people start and never finish this sort of project. Oh, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah, it's you know there's a, there's a lot of times you think it's it's not going to work, but any advice I can give anybody in the industry, anybody that's you know a writer and whatnot, um, just just keep at it. Uh, I mean it's it's an old adage, but you know just keep at it and let it be your therapy. You know what I mean? Like once it becomes your therapy and it's the thing that you know you know keeps you out of the dumps and whatnot, like um, you don't even feel like you're working. You know you'll get there. You know. Yeah. It'll happen. That's really cool. So, um, do you have do you have a schedule like events you're going to be doing? Have you put one together yet? Because I'd like to get a copy of that so I can put it with the show notes for this when I put out the blog post that goes with the episode. If you haven't yet, that's okay. Just send it to me in the email. We'll get it put it in the episode. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, cool. So, what are you working on now? What's coming up next? So, I have um, um, I wrote a 
a screenplay, um, I'd say like 10 years ago, called Filthy Godless Heathens. It's a, uh, it's a throwback to like 80s um, funny splatter horror. Um, more emphasis on the splatter horror than mm-hmm. the funny. I mean, you know, there's, there's uh, I would say like, you know, the, the, um, the dry, cool wit of like the Army of Darkness and the uh, Evil Dead 2. And, okay. You know, uh, movies like that, like, you know, just resonated with me as a kid. So um, I wrote this um, screenplay, and I, uh, I'd i say about four years ago I converted to a graphic novel, and I'm finally getting to see images. So Shiloh and I have been working on that. I brought in – we went a different direction. We're not doing the um, uh, the watercolors on this one. I have a very talented um, digital artist, um, uh, Nick Greenwood and uh, Wayne Miller, are doing color for a digital color. So more of a, a um, commercial poppy feel, but these guys uh, do cover work for um, a lot of reputable D and D card games. Oh, okay. So they they got an epic look and feel. Like these guys are good. Um, got a really talented uh, letterer behind me. Um, this one is um, a survive the night sort of horror. So there is a uh, small town called Brimstone, Texas, modern day, um, and they do. Uh, an old Western revival town. So like when I was a kid, there was this place called Carson city in New York, uh, upstate New York. And you go there and like, there's an old sheriff that walks out the main street and then black Bart stumbles out of the, uh, salon saloon. And they have a little, you know, gun battle. And then like the, you go into like, you know, the, um, the jail and you, you see people like actors, you know, playing the parts of like, uh, um, deputies and whatnot. So it was, you know, like a fun, it was a blast when I was a kid. I absolutely loved it. But I'm like, what a great backdrop for a horror movie. So um, the story is this small town, Brimstone, Texas. Um, it's all actors and no one knows how to shoot, you know, but they all play the part really well. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is that like a, think of like a 28 days later sort of virus runs through the town. Um, there's an old movie from the eighties called uh, Demons um, that I pulled some inspiration from. Great movie. Um, Dario Argento produced it, um, where people turn into zombies but look like demons. Um, and it's by a scratch and touch. So they have this whole existential, like, like Christian theme to it. Um, but, uh, you know, this movie, this, this virus runs through the town, um, and then boom, two days later go by, and the Circus Olay rolls into town trying to find uh, some new talent for a Western themed show that they're doing when they come to the town, they find that it's abandoned and it's a little bit too late. They can't get out of the town when they realize what's going on. So it becomes a survive the night with a bunch of these interesting characters from circus Olay, um, and a couple other, uh, misfit characters that get involved. So this is a, a 12 issue run. Um, so three graphic novels. Um, and right now we're finishing up, um, graphic novel one. So I'll be going for submissions in the near future uh, on that book. Awesome. What was your favorite horror film when you were growing up? Uh, favorite horror film growing up? Um, I would I would have to say probably the Evil Dead um, trilogy um, was up there. No, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna revise because I, I never even think of it as a horror movie, but it really is. Monster Squad okay. by uh, Frank Frank Drecker. Um, and his movie, uh, night of the creeps were like, I watched those religiously that and, uh, killer clowns from outer space and uh, invaders from Mars, which was, uh, they're all schlocky and kitschy in their own right, but they're just shot beautifully. 
Like they did, they look too good for their own good. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, the story is just entertaining. There's jokes thrown in there, and they're, every one of the characters is, is a little bit smarter than they probably should be, but in a fun way. Um, so those movies, uh, really, like even today, I can still rewatch those over and over again. That's fantastic. I always, I always like to ask that of horror fans just to kind of see what their background is in scary movies, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't say those are the scariest movies I've ever no, seen, but, but those, those are the are, ones those that stand are, out. Those are the most stand, yeah, yeah. definitely stand. Because I met, um, oh, uh, Dominic Davy, and he's the basis for the punk band Tsunami Bomb, but he's also a, uh, a self-published uh, comic book artist. Mm-hmm. And when I met him, he was wearing a Friday the 13th shirt, and I asked oh, him, okay. I, what was your favorite one? He said, oh, the first one. Well, then six months after that, I find out it's the only one he'd ever seen. I'm like, well, how are you even qualified to make the judgment? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm, I'm in like the Rob Zombie school of like horror where like just gobble up as much horror as possible just yeah. so that you can have a, a well-informed decision as to what's terrible out there. Well, and I'm one of those guys. I just kind of love just 80s slasher flicks in general, or 70s and 80s, really. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you can put me in front of, uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or Friday the 13th, Halloween, any of those, and I'll just be like happy as a kid with a coloring book, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that was uh, my uh, my childhood was uh, me and my dad uh, on a Friday night just going to uh, the local video cassette store, and uh, I'd spend an hour just looking at every cover. Shouldn't judge judge by the cover, but like I just I couldn't you know couldn't help it, and then just uh, as if it was like I was buying a house, like the most important decision of my life, which one I was going to use, mm. and then we would go home and we we'd get like Taco Bell and just watch. Uh, whatever two horror movies we would uh, we would pick. Um, that was the best times. It wasn't with my friends. It wasn't with, you know, um, playing basketball and nothing like that. It was, you know, sitting down on a Friday night with a couple movies and some uh, terrible junk food. Yeah, that's awesome. So, what made you, what made you decide to go to film school? Uh, I decided to go to film school just because um, I was obsessed with uh, just storytelling, and I found that um, I just understood cinema, sequential art, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it just, just spoke to me. Like I, you so, know, I, like as a kid, I just got the levels. Yeah. Know, were, you, were you hoping to go into directing? What was your, what was your goal? Uh, directing. Okay. Um, it's still, it always has been and, and always will be to uh, be able to direct a feature or two. I mean, the, the, the comic books, um, I feel like is is a journey that I hope at the end of it will uh, lead to um, film career. I mean, I've done a number of short films. I still do short films. I still work on. I work in the TV industry. I work uh, in live TV as a director. Um, it's, that's not sequential yeah. storytelling, but you know, like um, it's helped with my compositions and definitely um, helped my eye quite a bit. Um, but the end goal is to uh, get to write, direct, you know, a film one day. That's awesome. Yeah. After- I have I have a handful of friends, yeah, two or three, who have worked in film and have directed movies with a small budget as fifteen thousand dollars that that hit uh, theater and uh, back in the day VHS release. And wow. when you think about that, you realize shit, nine thousand that was film back then. So now with digital, you'd, you'd be able to knock it out of the park with a fifteen thousand dollar budget. It's a it's a little bit easier. When yeah. I was in film school, like you know, yeah, like uh, spending all your money on the celluloid was like, you know, like it, you just couldn't afford it. You know, it's either it was either pay your car insurance or like you know start making a movie. 
Um, now, yeah, with the uh, the influx of like um, high end digital um, cameras and and uh, it, it's a lot easier. It's definitely a lot easier. Um, I, I will say that I still have a struggle um, with the actor um, standpoint. Like I, I've definitely, you know, I have a good handle on, on working with actors and whatnot, but I don't have that like posse of, you know, actors at my disposal. Right. You know, so like you hear like stories like the Duplass brothers, um, you know, uh, making it big on their indie films, like um, com- uh, uh, something couch uh, was like, you know, their breakout or whatever, but uh, they acted in their own movies and that, you know, they, their friends were acting them and whatnot. Um, I haven't had that circle. My circle is more like, you know, writers and comic book guys and whatnot. Um, you know, maybe one day, I'll have that uh, at my disposal, but um, as of right now, uh, I'll stick to the writing, and you know, hopefully, uh, I'll get the opportunity. Well, that's awesome. Um, so, if people want to check you out or learn more about you, where can they find you at on the interwebs? Um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Charles Chester. Um, I uh, also have the Boy Zero Facebook page. Um, a Filthy Godless Heathens Facebook page is on in the works. It'll be happening pretty soon. Um, those are the main. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. Um, uh, I'm that lame that I can't even remember my Instagram name right now. Also, I'll send I'll send you all that information. Yeah. Um, so if anybody's looking for you, if they don't get it from this, I'll definitely have it in the show notes so that we can find it through Facebook or Twitter or just on our website at geekishcast.com. Yeah, it'd be great, man. I I welcome and look forward to any feedback from people. Um, you know, either from the interview or I would love to hear people's thoughts on the book. If anyone um, uh, picks it up, uh, you know, that that sort of uh, dialogue, I live for it. So, yeah, awesome. uh, please. Cool. Well, Charlie, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yeah, it was a blast. I had a good time talking to you. Yeah. And if you're listening, I want you to go ahead and take a minute. Uh, go to the show notes on geekishcast.com. Go find his uh Facebook pages, check them out, and if you get a chance, buy the comic, Boy Zero, and uh, let them know what you think of it. All right, everybody, catch us later, but in the meantime, go to geekishcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast. Charlie, thanks again, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you you so much. And I hope you come back sometime, too. Yeah, once Filthy Godless Heathens is out, I'll give you a call. Sounds good. Geekish Cast is a Vias and Victor production and is part of the Astro Panda Productions Network. You can find us now on SoundCloud and on Blog Talk Radio. Our theme music is taken from the song Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zaius. Check them out at reignofzaius.net.